The European Union has not treated us well. Stupid European elites jumping off the cliffs once again. Yes, you are the guilty people and you refuse to accept it. This is EU Scream, the podcast on Europe and its political extremes. I'm James, a journalist who's crisscrossed Europe for 15 years now, covering politics and the economy. I'm Tom. I've been a lobbyist and spin doctor in Brussels for many years, and I've spent the last decade fighting climate change. In this episode, the storms over European Union trade policy. We hear from two commentators about how that policy is being buffeted by China, by Donald Trump, and by the discontent stirred up by the financial crisis that began last decade. For The View from the Citadel, we speak with Arancha Gonzalez, the chief of staff to Pascal Lamy when he ran the World Trade Organization from 2005 until 2013. First, Tom and I get the munchies. So, what is your favorite European local delicacy? Ooh. I'm talking food, of course. You're talking food, yeah. This is a tough question because you've always got to decide whether or not you're going to go with something you really love or kind of be a bit sort of national pride about it and go with kind of local produce. I've probably got to go with the Melton Mowbray pork pie. Oh, yes. As my all-time personal favorite, although I'm very, very, very partial to a bit of Parma ham also. With the Melton Mowbray pork pie, it has a certain structure. It does. Can you describe that? <laughs> and like, whoa, how would you describe the gelatinous component? Right, the gelatinous component is quite important in a Melton Mowbray pork, pork pie. And for anybody who's never been to Melton Mowbray, it's in the Midlands uh, in England. And it is famed for one thing, which is the pork pies. And so you have an outer crust of relatively hard glazed pastry, which completely covers the pie. So it's at the bottom, top, sides, the whole thing. It's completely enclosed. And then inside that, at its core, you have essentially a lump of sausage meat, broadly, pretty high-quality sausage meat. And there's a lot of clearly Melton Mowbray-based specialness that goes into the sausage meat, but essentially it's sausage meat. And then that is surrounded. So in between the sausage meat and the pastry, you have this gelatinous layer, coagulated meat juice. Right, it's a jelly. It's a jelly. Yeah. Do you eat your pork pie with English mustard? I tend to pickle. Oh, like a chutney? Like a chutney, yeah. So is the pork pie so special that it merits European protection? The Melton Mowbray pork pie is indeed protected under the Geographical Indicators Program of EU trade law. Wow. What does that actually mean? A geographical indication is a distinctive sign, which basically in copyright language means name broadly. It's a way of protecting the brand of stuff that comes from particular places so that European locals can continue to benefit from this from these localised manufacture. There is an element of that kind of national specialty to it, or local, indeed, local specialty to it. So I'm kind of asking about this because the far right, notably members of Matteo Salvini's Lega Party and Marine Le Pen of the French Rassemblement, they have at various times laid into EU trade policy for robbing their people of jobs and sovereignty 
And of course, there is a major debate to be had about that. I mean, no doubt about it. But, you know, it's not as if the EU doesn't protect exports and jobs linked to them anymore. No, it does massively. And indeed, one of the, I mean, one of the classic cases, indeed, I worked on it, was about the import of shoes from China. Now, obviously, shoes, we clearly recognise, are inherently Italian. <laughs> and and there is a large and, and I hope continuing to prosper Italian shoe, shoe industry. And they they acted entirely to protect the Italian shoe industry. And they've acted to protect all kinds of bits of industry around Europe. Yeah, these were the so-called duties or taxes on imports that early this decade were still adding like 17% extra charges to shoes imported from China and I think nearly 10% from Vietnam. And nowhere is it more true that there are protections than in the food sector. It's this kind of protection that means a trade association, for instance, in Europe, say for a specific cheese or pork pie for that matter, can sue a manufacturer in another part of the world for using a protected name to big up the authenticity and appeal of that foreign product legitimately or otherwise. Are you ready for the EU scream slash EU trade gastronomy challenge? Go at it, man. Question one. Does Brussels protect more kinds of Italian prosciutto or more kinds of French foie gras under the trade deal called CETA that has been done with Canada? I, I mean, how is many... It, is it Italian ham or is it French duck liver? But I mean, how many different ways can you tie down a duck and shove food down its throat? <laughs> Surely it has to be Italian ham because like, there's a bunch of different ways you can smoke stuff. You're going with the ham. Yeah, I'm going with the ham. It's the foie gras. No. Yes. What does it depend on what you stuff the duck with? No, no, no. Or what you nail it to? Man, I don't quite know how they do this. <laughs> okay, but there right. are six foie gras that are protected. And I'm going to try and say these regional French names. Chalos, Gascogne, Gers, Lande, Perigord, and Quercy. By contrast, there are four prosciuttos. Parma, Modena, Toscano, nah. San Daniele. San Daniele, of course. <laughs> All right, question two. Which cheese superpower, France or Italy, does better in terms of the numbers of cheeses protected under the EU's brand spanking new trade deal with Japan? Wow. France or Italy? Hmm, I've already called one wrong, and this is really hard. I'm going to go with France. As it happens, it is Italy. Two down. Two I've, down. Gone I've gone French twice and I've lost. Yes, speaks <laughs> volumes. Okay, so the protected cheeses under the Japan deal, and again, forgive my pronunciation here, Taleggio, Provolone, Pecorinos, Romano, and Toscano, Parmigiana, Mozzarella di Bufala, Grana Pandano, Gorgonzola, Fontino, and Asiago. France has Brie de Meaux, Camembert de Normandie, Comte Emmental de Savoie, Reblochon, and Roquefort. Yeah, a lot of Italian cheese. And it has to be said, actually, when you read out that list, of course, they are all very, very recognisably international products. Partially, I guess, because they have Oh, you're just a... saying the name recognition. Yeah, yeah, yeah just yeah. the name recognition globally, right, on pizzas or whatever it happens to be. All right, so 
Question three on Britain this time. Okay. What was the latest fruit or veg product that Britain, which still says it's leaving Europe's top dining table to become the plongeur in the kitchen, won protection for from Brussels? Was it A, a Welsh plum? <laughs> B, a Welsh seaweed? C, an English asparagus? Wow. I mean, just for the kind of sheer sort of new ageness of it, I think I'm going to go with Welsh seaweed. Yeah, I, you know, I would have done that too. But you're wrong. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So as signed off by none other than Pierre Moscovici, the EU's Economics and Finance Commissioner, a Frenchman of not entirely unrefined tastes, he okayed the plum. Good man. The Vale of Cluid Denby plum. In recent years, it has experienced a resurgence bringing together communities in the designated area and resulted in the annual Vale of Cluid Denby Plum Feast, which is attended by over 2,000 visitors. Good on them. Good on them. I've got to say, I didn't know about that, but I'm going. That sounds awesome. We have a plum tree in our back garden, which produces a certain number of plums, but I bet you they're not as good as Denby Oh, you should plums. go for a GI on that. Yeah, the, totally. The Excel. Um, Saint-Gilles, my friend. The San, sorry. Yeah, the Saint-Gilles plum. So what's going to happen to all these GIs once Britain leaves the EU? So this gets a little bit messy. There are currently 86 GI-protected uh, UK products comprising 76 agricultural and food products, five wines, five spirit drinks. They make up about a quarter of the value of all UK food and drink exports. So these are pretty important, right? Uh, the assumption currently from the UK government, and I love these technical notes from the UK government, essentially they all say, don't worry, everything will be fine. Anyway, so their expectation is it will be set up roughly along the same lines as the EU scheme, but essentially products will have to re-register for a, for a UK uh, uh, geographical indication, GI as we'll call it then that UK GI will need to be written into trade agreements. And of course, possibly most importantly, the UK isn't just Melton Mowbray pork pies and Welsh plums. It's Scotch whiskey. This is a massive global business. And Scotch distilleries make a lot of money. And they are going to think very, very seriously about how they deal with this problem if it turns out to be a major Brexit issue. Arancha Gonzalez was chief of staff to Pascal Lamy during the period he led the World Trade Organization from 2005 until 2013. Nowadays, Gonzalez is the executive director of the International Trade Center, a development agency in Geneva jointly run by the WTO and the World Bank. Her mission is to help small and medium-sized enterprises in poorer parts of the world to find ways to sell into developed markets, like Europe. I first asked Gonzalez, who spoke with me by phone, whether the nationalists and populists storming European politics have a point when they blame international trade for hurting working people. Well, wrong. Trade does not hurt working people. Actually, trade provides purchasing power to poorer people, 
trade provides competitiveness, trade provides productivity. You know, for poor households, they have a propensity to spend more on things like food, clothes, shoes. Uh, and this is where trade gives them a boost by lowering what they have to pay. It's richer people that can spend more in yoga lessons and in restaurants that uh, get less of a benefit from participating in international trade. Of course, this is one part of the story. In reality, for trade to work for the poorer people, we need to invest in much more than trade. We need to invest in things other than trade agreements. We need to invest in education. We need to invest in skilling these people. We need to help them adapt. You know, maybe in the past they were manufacturing textiles. They are no longer competitive at manufacturing textiles, but they could be great uh, in renewable energy. So helping them do the shifts is what will make sure that trade helps, in reality, poor people. It's almost like cutting off trade is a regressive tax on poorer people. You see, the wrong kind of trade, the trade that goes for unilateralist protectionism, is a tax on poor people. It looks like you're defending poor people, but in reality you are imposing a massive tax on them because they are the largest beneficiaries of decreased prices when you increase markets. That's only the import part. You also have to help these people be part of the more competitive, more productive, better wages story that comes when they can export. Now, how do you counter this equally powerful narrative on the hard left, on the deep green, that trade policy gives corporations too much power, taking away environmental and worker protections and so on? Take the example of Europe. Europe has uh, probably uh, the highest standards or around the highest standards in the world on environment, on workers' rights, on labor rights. But it's also a very open trade environment. So I don't think it is trade policies that give corporations or that give NGO or civil society this or that is governments applying trade policies. Let me give you an example. In the World Trade Organization at the moment, governments are negotiating an agreement to stop subsidizing overfishing. Where could they get to cut subsidies to overfishing if it wasn't through a trade agreement? So trade can also be used and trade policy can also be used to protect common goods. Having said all of this, uh, James, to me it's pretty clear that governments signing trade agreements or pursuing trade policy in the future will have a big pressure not coming from corporations or from civil society. They will have huge pressure coming from the rise of the conscious consumer. The consumer that would want to know uh, what the government is doing, that what they are purchasing, that what they are importing, that they are consuming, is also respectful with uh, their desire to protect more the environment and climate change, with their desire to ensure that human rights are upheld around the world, with their desire to ensure that workers enjoy decent labor conditions around the world. And it's becoming bigger and bigger, not just in Europe middle classes around the world, also in developing countries. And they are demanding from governments, from businesses, from NGOs, more. Will that just manifest itself 
by itself as these countries grow in economic strength? Or does something have to come from the leaders in order to make clear that those conscious consumers have an outlet? Well, I think for the consumer to be an active member in shaping uh, policies, he needs transparency. Transparency means information. And uh, this is what a number of businesses have understood, and they are enhancing transparency about their production methods, about uh, where they buy the ingredients, about uh, from whom they buy the ingredients. Are they buying from men? Are they buying from women? And through that, contributing to women's economic participation. Do they have production methods and practices that are compatible with our fight to reduce CO2 emissions? Many governments have also understood that maybe they have to prod and push businesses to be a bit more active in this space. Now, Donald Trump calls Europe a trade foe. He said that nobody treats us much worse than the European Union. The European Union was formed in order to take advantage of us on trade And that's what they've done. Now, Donald Trump is not renowned for his grasp of history. uh, So I just wondered if you could unpick that statement for us. Well, let me let me be very careful here because I'm not representing the views of the European Union of those uh, of uh, America. But if my memory serves me right, if I read a little bit into history, the European Union was formed essentially by American military and economic support to stop Europeans from fighting each other. And it's been a standing success. Frankly, the Americans were very successful in their endeavor of helping Europeans be better with other Europeans. They've been pretty successful to the point that uh, now Europe is America's largest uh, market, uh, the largest source of investment, and an ally in many fundamental issues like standing for human development, uh, for human rights, and for many other values like democracy and the rest. And I'm saying America and I'm saying Europe because I think there is something fundamental about this investment that historically America made in Europe that still stands and, in my view, will stand. Are you concerned that with the populace in Europe who are set to grow in power after May's European Parliament elections, is all of that going to kind of help Trump's agenda when we think about how populists are so anti-trade these days? Yeah, but you know, uh, what I fear is uh, that we're living at a time uh, where we're being driven by uh, slogans, slogans that can fit into a tweet, very few characters, simple things. And we are discovering that driving policies through very simple pronouncements fitting in tweets is leading us nowhere. It's not helping us address the demands that we have from the 99% of our societies for solutions to their problems. So, and we are seeing this in so many countries around the world, starting with uh, Brexit and the UK. It is one thing to say, oh, well, you know, I will protect you by erecting protectionist measures. It's another thing to give these people the hope that in the world of tomorrow they will have a place. And that requires complex solutions. So I am optimistic in the sense that at the end of the day, citizens who often are a bit ahead of their politicians, will elect politicians or will demand from the politicians they have elected 
solutions to their problems. And then we will have to see which are the solutions that are being proposed and which ones of these solutions are effective in addressing people's needs. Today, we have huge needs. Youth employment, technological adaptation, adaptation to climate change. We only have one planet. And if we do not change the way we produce and consume, we will just simply lose it. So these are the kind of uh, questions to which, in my view, citizens will everywhere, including in Europe, demand solutions, including from populist parties. Gonzalez certainly makes a spirited defense of the benefits of trade, and she even sees it recovering some of its luster as consumers increasingly demand products with high environmental and labor practices. Our next commentator is more equivocal. Reinhard Buttekofer is a member of the European Parliament and a major figure in the German Green Party, a party which is broadly skeptical towards trade. But last year, with toxic forms of nationalism on the rise, Buttekofer very nearly voted yes to the giant EU trade deal with Japan, because of his geostrategic concern to shore up multilateralism. He abstained only because of loyalty to his green political group, which for the most part voted no. But Kofer does much of his political work in deindustrialized parts of Germany, where the anti-EU far-right alternative for Germany does well with voters threatened by globalization. Even so, he believes Europe is starting to do a much better job of protecting workers and jobs from unfair Chinese competition. Here, Buttekofer, who spoke in Brussels last week, describes a recent effort to stop China from using World Trade Organization rules to hollow out European industry. I would say that Europe has taken some very important steps forward. I do recall that uh, three years ago, January 2016, the European Commission argued that we should just let the Chinese accession protocol expire, which would have led to the consequence that we would have been helpless uh, vis-à-vis Chinese dumping exports. And it was openly demonstrated at the time that these dumping exports in the steel sector had already caused several thousand jobs in the UK alone. So uh, in, a, in a very interesting coalition, it was the European Parliament together with industry that stood up and said, no, we're not going to take this. And we forced the commission to turn around. For Butti Kofer, the most immediate threat to a multilateral future isn't so much from Europe's homegrown nationalist populists, but from those who are running the United States. Buttekofer fully expects Donald Trump to go ahead and slap tariffs on Europe's car industry, in defiance of appeals by Brussels and Berlin to avoid a painful and protracted transatlantic trade war. Sure. As the U.S. is not so successful with uh, its car exports to Europe, we cannot hit back symmetrically, so we'll, we'll probably hit back asymmetrically. So this tariff war just gets worse. The multilateral system is breaking down. 
No, it's not breaking down. It's being broken down. I mean, I, I would still insist on putting the blame where it belongs. It belongs uh, right at the White House. Our final commentator, Lorenzo Marsili, has more fundamental problems with the trading system. He is the author of the book Citizens of Nowhere and a strong critic of the EU's existing structures. Two years ago, he helped to start the leftist DM25 political movement with Yanis Varoufakis, the former Greek finance minister who hectored Germany to make the Eurozone more transparent and responsive to ordinary people's concerns. DM25 takes that idea much further. The movement's leaders, like Marseille, say that only root-and-branch democratization of the entire EU, and that includes its trade policy, can save the European project from descending more deeply into xenophobia and social injustice. What the nationalists want to do is to hijack the European process and transform it into a kind of nationalist Europe, whereby Europe would have a united voice when it comes to trade agreements so that it, that it could play uh, hard boy with, with China. It would have a common border, which would be a very strong and deadly border for those trying to access it, whether by sea or by land. But then it would be completely emptied out of any transnational democracy, common regulation, uh, common political space in its, in its midst. So what the nationalists really aspire to is a gigantic fortress that keeps migrants out and enables European nations to project a little bit more power in international negotiations with, 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 with other countries. It's no longer the mere disintegration of Europe that they aspire to. Paradoxically, they have a plan for Europe, whereas progressives don't today. Marsili, who spoke in Berlin last weekend, also warned progressives to coordinate their strategies on Europe better or face a nightmarish future where far-right nationalist populists run the show. In the case of, uh, of Canada, for instance, what we would have done is to sit down, something that doesn't happen, think about it, to sit down with Canadian uh, labor representatives, Canadian civil society, Canadian political, uh, progressive political parties, and work out together a better deal that would uh, uh, protect standards, would lift the standards of workers, would perhaps include a minimum uh, wage common to the European Union and to Canada that workers had to be paid. Um, and then we would present this deal jointly uh, in Canada and in the European Union through a transnational, uh, transnational work. What we have forgotten is the power of imagination, the power of uh, movements and parties coming together across national borders, devising a different plan than the one that our elites tell us is the only alternative possible, and then politically pushing it forward. That's EU Scream for this week. You can check our website at euscream.com for links to topics discussed in the show and for more episodes. Please rate us on iTunes, tweet about us at EU Screams, and like us on Facebook. You'll also find us on Instagram and LinkedIn. EU Scream is edited and mixed by me, James Cantor. Tom Brooks and I produce the show. Laura Natali plays our piano. Thanks for listening.